Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 34, A New Empire. So, all the new Patreon supporters were mentioned at the beginning of the last episode. I'm recording these day after another, so no new Patreon supporters to mention today. That means we're jumping right into things. So, we left off last time with the death of the Byzantine Emperor Manuel and the beginning of a regency for his son, Alexios II, who was about 11 years old when his father died. The regency was run by the mother of Alexios, who became a nun after her husband's death and took the name Zina. She entrusted her son's cousin, another guy named Alexios, with power. Uh, and now it's suspected that this was in part because the two may have been lovers, but who knows? So we've got the young emperor and his mother kind of with her lover possibly running things as regents. But the young emperor was kept far from power in this arrangement. You know, it's not like he was right there at their side watching how things are done and learning. He was off in the palace, kept away from uh, all the action. And as a result, uh, and also because uh, Zena was a Latin, she was from the Crusader states, not Greek-speaking, not kind of from Byzantium, uh, the allies were exceptionally unhappy with this arrangement. Uh, the, the kind of uh, people... The everyday people in the streets were really unhappy with the fact that a Latin was effectively running the show and stirred up riots in response to this regency and the way it was set up. Taking advantage of this chaos, Manuel's cousin enters the picture. Now, quick background on who this guy was. His name was Andronicus, and he had previously conspired against Manuel and been exiled to Russia. There, he had gathered forces to crown himself before being forgiven by Manuel for, you know, <laughs> trying to overthrow the empire and kind of welcome back into the fold. Then, he made his, uh, his cousin Manuel mad again, fled to Antioch, screwed things up there some more, made himself unwelcome, fled to Jerusalem, helped that kingdom in some wars in Syria, ended up in Georgia, the country, married the sister of the king of Georgia, settled down for a bit, had his family captured by the Byzantines, begged his cousin for forgiveness to get his family back, and received his wish and returned home again. So this guy's had quite a background of sort of rebelling and uh, constantly uh, making himself unpopular wherever he goes and having to kind of flee to the next spot. Then, at this moment, in 1182... He, Andronicus enters Constantinople to great acclaim to effectively enact a coup and retake the government from Zena and her kind of Latin influence. <clears throat> the resulting anti-Latin riots, which were kind of celebrating this new emperor, saw 80,000 Latins and Venetians massacred in Constantinople. We were talking mobs moving through the Latin quarters, killing everyone, including William and uh, William, women and children. 
It was kind of a reminder of just what the mobs of Constantinople were capable of. I mean, again, even you think of the the Nika riots, I don't think even the Nika riots were quite on this scale. 80,000 estimated deaths in uh, in just a couple days of rioting. It's an incredible amount of carnage. So we already know, you'll recall from last time, that at this moment in Byzantine history, the Crusader states in the West really don't trust the Byzantines. They don't like the Byzantines. Uh, You'll recall all the things that have happened in the last Crusades. Just things have never gone well between these. Well, as you can imagine, this orgy of violence against their people did nothing to change the opinion of the West towards the Byzantines. It helped to further sour relations between Byzantium and all of its Christian neighbors for generations. Uh, I mean, effectively, for for decades and decades after this, anyone who had a nice thing to say about the Greek-speaking Byzantines could always be reminded of the massacre of the Latins and just how treacherous these people were. So, upon taking power, and once these riots had quieted down, Andronicus had little Alexios II's mother, uh, half-sister, and co-ruler, all these people, murdered. So, yeah, Andronicus uh, isn't mincing words. He's not kind of messing around. He just has the people who he uh, kind of took power against all killed. So now the idea was that Andronicus and Alexios II were going to rule together. So Alexios II is still alive. It's just the regents and the people who are really behind the power uh, were all taken out. But it was clear that the real power was with Andronicus. Within a year, Andronicus actually tired of this situation and decided just to have Alexios strangled with a bowstring. The poor boy was just 14. And with him, this was really the end of the Komnenos dynasty. I mean, true, Andronicus is related to, uh, to uh, you know, Alexios and some of the old Komnenos uh, members of this family, this family that have, have kind of led this Komnenian restoration, this incredibly successful century of Byzantine rise. But... You know, now it's like some cousins of the family who are kind of tangentially in charge and things. But with the death of Alexius II, that that core line of the Komneni is really gone. It's over. So in the two years between the death of Manuel and the arrival of Andronicus, so there were about two years of this power sharing before, um, before uh, Andronicus arrives, <clears throat> A lot had actually managed to happen, right? So this is all the palace intrigues, but before Andronica shows up, let's reverse and see what was going on. For instance, now you remember Bella, that new king of Hungary who was a buddy of Manuel's, who spent a lot of time in Constantinople, who was maybe going to be like the, the new Byzantine and Hungarian emperors? Well, he had no such love for Manuel's son. Like right? he, he was good friends with Manuel, but the moment Manuel died, almost immediately... Uh, Bella invades and retakes all the territory that the Byzantines had taken a few years earlier. So we're talking uh, that area around the Sava River, Bosnia, and uh, Dalmatia, the the Adriatic coast. So all those gains that uh, Manuel had won in two wars against the Hungarians, immediately retaken. And, you know, with with young... Uh, Alexios II in Constantinople with his regency that's kind of struggling to hold on to power. It's very unpopular. They had nothing much to do to stop this. So also in that two-year period, the Seljuks invade and take two really important border cities in Anatolia. So again, you know, we're thinking, uh, thinking back on how the reign of Manuel is similar to, say, Simeon or a lot of these powerful Bulgarian czars uh, that 
you know, you have this incredibly powerful figure who fought all these wars and took all this territory and really just pushed his state to the edge. And then the moment they die, the state immediately becomes very vulnerable and it's easy for everyone just to retake everything. I mean, I, I think back to, I, I keep mentioning this movie, uh, The Lion in Winter, my favorite movie of all time. And when King Henry II is talking to the, the young new king of France. So King Henry II is very, very old and he's deciding which of his sons is going to inherit the kingdom. And he's talking to this very young king of France. And they're negotiating over a dowry. It's all complicated. But basically what happens is Henry says, Ah, you know, if you want to negotiate with me, I'll just go to war and I'll, I'll, you know, take you down. I'll destroy you. And Louis says, Fine, France surrenders. I'll give you a county here, give you some land there. And he basically threatened that no matter what Henry does, France will just surrender. France won't even bother to fight. But with the full knowledge that once Henry dies, they'll just take it all back. And so this is a bit like that. This is, you know, when you have these medieval states that are so driven by a single personality, this is always a threat, right? There's always this knowledge that if when that one person dies without their personality, without their, their leadership, that the state can become quite helpless very quickly. So think about that in, in this situation. How this is similar to what's happened in Bulgarian history and other medieval states and in the Byzantines. <clears throat> okay, so all of this brings us to 1183, when Andronicus has just taken power, and the Byzantines have made everyone in the Christian world super mad at them. They've lost territory to the Hungarians and the Seljuks. But Andronicus, well, he's ready to get started and start taking it all back and you know leading the Byzantines. So the first thing he does is marry Agnes of France, the 12-year-old daughter of the French king, who was supposed to marry Alexios. So pre pretty, you know, pretty messed up here. So he, he murders the little 14-year-old Alexios and then takes his betrothed and uh, says, oh, I'll, I'll just marry you. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, the question is, how awkward is it to marry a girl whose fiancé you just murdered? I don't know. Is it more awkward than marrying a girl who is 53 years younger than you? I'll kind of leave that up to you to decide, but bear that in mind. The age difference between Agnes of France and Andronicus is 53 years. So just all kinds of awkward. This is like next level awkward wedding. But still, in spite of all this, Andronicus does get to work. He pays the Venetians a huge sum of money to bury the hatchet about the, the kind of bad blood which had existed for, between them for over a decade because of Manuel arresting and killing a bunch of Venetians back in the day. So... That's where, that's kind of, after this pretty smart move, Andronicus not being a screw-up comes to an end. Like, Andronicus doing the right thing is over at this point. Uh, not that he was doing the right thing very much before. So, it, because really, I mean, if the abbreviated story of the life of Andronicus tells you anything, it's that this guy does not play well with others, and he's just not a nice person. So, already, everyone... Uh, he Andronicus kind of right, right away starts pissing people off, right? So he suppresses the power of the nobility because he's afraid that the Byzantine nobles are going to challenge him. But he also uh, hits the everyday people with really, really harsh laws. So, you know, he's kind of comes in as like a law and order guy. And so he manages to pretty quickly make himself unpopular with everyone, with the nobles and the common people alike. And this prompts several minor revolts. Then, about two years into his reign, things get worse when the Normans decide to do that thing that the Normans do and invade the Balkans. 
if you're counting at home, that's for the fourth time, the fourth Norman invasion of the uh, of the Western Balkans in you know less than a century. The Normans are just really determined to to invade the Balkans as much as possible, even though it never seems to work out for them. <clears throat> so in eleven eighty five, two hundred ships land eighty thousand soldiers and five thousand knights. So this is a very serious invasion force. They land in Epirus, which is, you know, think about where uh, north uh, northwestern Greece slash Albania is about right now. So the army quickly moves and captures Dyrrhachium. Uh, so no big siege this time like before. They take it pretty easily. And they move towards Thessalonica. While their fleet moves around Greece, taking some islands as they go. So the two, the fleet and the uh, land army then join forces to mount a joint assault on Thessalonica in August of that year, of, uh, 1185. The city's defenses were terribly organized. Its commander totally failed to prepare the walls and forbade his forces from uh, mounting defensive attacks against the Normans as they prepared to assault it. So ultimately, once two Byzantine release forces failed to kind of get in there and change the situation, Within just weeks, the Normans had successfully undermined the city walls, made part of them collapse, stormed the city, sacked it, killed about 7,000 of its inhabitants. So it was a disaster. I mean, uh, Thessalonica, I'm not sure if it's still the second biggest city in the empire, but traditionally that's its role. It's the second biggest city of the Byzantine Empire, a, a hugely important city, and it just got completely sacked. Um so this is a disaster. It does not look good for the Byzantines. Now the Normans are feeling good and they're moving towards Constantinople itself. No doubt sort of dreaming of taking that great queen of cities for themselves. So they're on the slow march to Constantinople. Andronicus is no doubt freaking out. So in September of that year, Andronicus is away from Constantinople. Uh, one of his lieutenants tries to arrest a guy named Isaac II Angelos who's another member of the extended uh, Komnenos family, because the loyalty of Isaac II was kind of a bit suspect, right? Andronicus didn't trust the guy, and so he orders his lieutenant to arrest him. But Isaac manages to kill the lieutenant and hides in the Hagia Sophia. There, he calls on the population to rise around him and take down this increasingly unpopular emperor. So... Within just a couple of years of uh, of Andronicus doing essentially this exact same thing, now Isaac is saying, like, yeah, screw the unpopular empire. Let's get a popular revolt here. Let's have a coup. Let's take this guy down. So when Andronicus returns to the city, he finds that Isaac has been proclaimed emperor. And so Andronicus, he's freaking out. He knows he's not popular. He doesn't have much of a chance here. He tries to escape with his French child bride, but they're taken by the mob and uh, basically Andronicus is brutally tortured for three days uh, by the mob. Uh, his hands are cut off, his teeth are pulled out, his hair is pulled out, his eyes are gouged out. He's repeatedly splashed with boiling water. Eventually, he gets hung upside down in the Hippodrome and cut in half. So, you know, we mentioned how like Andronicus is not a popular guy. This really gives you an idea of just how unpopular he was. I mean, even the the even Isaac, no one seems to have tried to stop the mob from doing this. I mean, this went on for three days. So it's not like 
you know, there's sort of a mob and this orgy of violence and they get the emperor and they they beat him up for an hour and kill him. No, they tortured him for three days and nobody stopped them. So just like with the, the kind of massacre of the Latins, this is you're really getting an idea of the brutality of the mob in Constantinople. And when they don't like someone, they really don't like that person or that group of people. So uh, when they get the news, then, you know, news travels throughout the empire. So what that this has just happened. Remember, the Normans are still marching from Thessalonica to Constantinople, but they're not there yet. Uh, troops in Thrace, who are presumably the, the ones in between uh, the, the Normans and Constantinople, get word of uh, that uh, Andronicus has been murdered. They've got Andronicus's son and co-emperor John with them. So they go ahead and murder him too. So that's the end of Andronicus and his line. They're all dead. So back to Isaac, the guy who kind of prompted all of this stuff. Who exactly was this guy? So I mentioned he's a, a member of the extended uh, Comnenos family. So he was the son of a general and also the grandson of Alexios I. So remember Alexios Comnenos, that really powerful Byzantine emperor from a couple episodes back. This is his grandson. So the guy's got royal blood. He's got military credentials. Uh, he seems pretty well suited. <clears throat> so it's now September 1156. The Normans are in the middle of the invasion. Isaac has become the new emperor. And now it's time to see what's going to happen. So obviously Isaac sends an army out to meet the Normans to stop them. So they they kind of meet each other near Demetrizis, uh, a Byzantine city. Just about just south of the modern Bulgarian Greek border. So think about kind of roughly where Macedonia, Greece, and Bulgaria all meet today. And it's down in Greece in that area. So initially, there's a kind of truce between the Byzantine and the Norman armies. But that truce doesn't last very long because uh, while that's kind of in play, the Byzantines launch a sudden and devastating attack. The Normans are completely routed and they flee all the way back to the Adriatic coast. So they just get trounced and they really run away. They run very far away. And they so all the gains they make are all lost. Uh, even though, of course, when the, the Byzantines enter Thessalonica, they still find all the, the carnage and the death and everything. So yes, it's true the Normans give up all this territory, but the Byzantines have still taken some serious losses. Um, so once again, for the fourth time, the Normans have tried and failed to invade the Balkans. It's just, it's becoming a bit of a tradition now. You can mark, you know, set your watch by failed Norman invasions of the Balkans. But still, there were successes elsewhere. Uh, in the final months of the year, Isaac sent a fleet to liberate his brother from a prison in Acre in the, the Holy Land. But the Norman navy managed to defeat that force. So then Isaac sends another navy to try to retake Cyprus from Manuel's brother, John, who had taken it when his family had been deposed. So when Alexios II had been uh, killed and everything, um, Alexios's uncle and Manuel's brother, John, he decides to sort of take Cyprus and say, to hell with you, you know, you're not a legitimate emperor, I'm going to hold on to Cyprus. Once again, a Norman fleet prevents this from succeeding. So even though the Normans fail in the Balkans, their fleets are managing to prevent Isaac II from getting anything done in the Mediterranean. But then while all this has been happening, things have been happening as well back in Constantinople. So we're only about a couple months into Isaac's reign, but that's already long enough for him to initiate a huge tax increase in order to pay for the army and to pay for his upcoming big fancy marriage to uh, the daughter of King Bela of Hungary. 
So remember King Bela of Hungary, the same guy. You just retook all this Byzantine territory. Well, now Isaac, the new emperor, wants to marry his daughter, Margaret. Uh, so <clears throat> these huge tax increases led to a huge amount of resentment in the provinces, particularly in the Balkans, the area around the Balkan or Hamas Mountains. These people are getting a huge amount of this new tax burden, and they are pissed about it. Now, the people in this region uh, are send two kind of emissaries, Theodore, who is also called Peter, and Asen, to go negotiate with the Byzantines about the new taxes, to say like, hey, is, is there some way we can work this out? Now, these two men say to, they, they meet the emperor, they meet Isaac, and they say to pay these taxes, um, if you could just let us join the Byzantine army and give us some land, we can use the profits in that land to pay these taxes and everyone will be happy. Well, these two men are refused. They're treated extremely badly. As, as a Byzantine chronicler puts it, quote, they spat out heated words, hinted at rebellion and the destruction they would wreak on their way home. Asen, the more insolent and savage of the two, was struck across the face and rebuked for his insolence at the command of the Sebaskakotor John, so one of the Byzantine office holders. So <clears throat> the Bulgarians and the Vlachs of these lands, so you know the Vlachs, we've talked about them before, kind of semi-nomadic peoples. Now, the people in these lands who are getting hit by this tax burden are initially a bit hesitant to revolt. Uh, and this is unsurprising because remember the past few Bulgarian uprisings have not gone well. So to convince them, Theodore Nasen builds a church of St. Demetrius of Thessaloniki in Tornovo. So Tornovo is the city where they're from in, uh, in the central kind of Balkan area. And they build this church and it's part of kind of a campaign to convince the people that this Saint Demetrius, the patron saint of Thessalonica, uh, has decided to abandon the Byzantines and is now going to favor them, right? So instead of kind of using the, and we'll talk about this a bit later, the the language of nationalism, the language of let's let's take out these Byzantines and things, they're saying you know God no longer favors the Byzantines. You know you should rebel not just because of these awful taxes, but because we have God on our side, so we're going to succeed. So. The rebellion begins in earnest on October 26th, 1185, which is the feast day of St. Demetrius of Thessalonica. <clears throat> so they're, they're really giving this a very religious bent and, and trying to kind of connect this saint with the, the uprising. And the uprising goes very well initially. Uh, the people are inspired and rebel forces pretty quickly take Byzantine settlements and resources in the area. Uh, then after a raid on Preslav, Theodor, quote, bound his head with a golden chaplet and fashioned scarlet buskins to put on his feet, end quote. And in this way, he kind of claimed himself a new Tsar of the Bulgarians. So just like with those, all those uh, uprisings we've seen before, once again, we've got a Bulgarian uprising and someone proclaiming themselves Tsar. The difference this time is that Theodor and Asen both don't, they're nobles, like they're, they're kind of well-to-do guys, but they don't have a blood connection to the old uh, Bulgarian royal families, right? They're just some nobles who decided they're like, okay, we're going to be the new Tsars. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a new group of people who are going to be running things. So now with this, the second Bulgarian empire has begun. It's been 167 years since the first Bulgarian empire was just buried by the Byzantines. And now finally a new state has come up to take its mantle. So this is proof again that 
if you want to think about it this way, the idea of a Bulgarian state was capable of surviving what so many other steppe people states couldn't, right? A long period of domination. So even though this new state it wasn't super duper Bulgarian, uh, you know, again, I'll talk about that in a minute, but still the, the idea of a Bulgarian state was powerful enough for it to be worth the this Theodor Nassan to take it up and decide that they'll proclaim themselves Bulgarian Tsars and not anything else. You know, they're not going to pro- proclaim the new Tornovo Empire. They're not going to proclaim the new Bulgarian Vlach Empire or something. No, they're going to claim that they are a new uh, version of the old Bulgarian state. So after these initial successes, uh, while the Byzantines are still dealing with the Norman invasion, remember, the Normans are still kind of happening while this Bulgarian uprising is happening, it's now 1186, and the Byzantines have taken care of the Normans and can turn their full attention to this uprising. So that spring, Isaac invades the rebellious lands. But the rebels, they knew they couldn't withstand a full battle. They didn't want to take the Byzantines on mano a mano. So... Initially, they just kind of hid in the mountains, hid in the hills. They avoided direct fighting. But then, on April 21st, there was a complete solar eclipse, along with a battle, which saw the Byzantines pretty soundly defeat the rebels under this blackened sky. Um, So you imagine this is a very dramatic moment, right? A total, total solar eclipse. The sky goes black in the middle of the day while this fighting is happening between the Byzantines and the Bulgarians, and it's a disaster. For the rebel forces. Most of them flee towards the Danube to cross the river and link up with the Cumans who lived north of it. So knowing he was still pretty vulnerable though, Isaac, uh, you know, he, he wasn't counting his chickens just yet. He, know he had, knew he hadn't completely defeated the rebellion. So he takes the icon of St. Demetrius uh, from the, the chapel in Turnival and returns to Constantinople to celebrate victory and the return of the favor of the saint, right? So he's taking a stab at the this core kind of religious idea of the uprising, that it's all about the fact that they now have the favor of St. Demetrius. He says, ah, no, you don't. See, I won this battle, and now I have the icon. So when the Bulgarians, the Vlachs, and their Cuman allies return north of the Danube to fight again, so they weren't completely defeated, they go north of the Danube, they regroup, and they come back, they found the entire region, quote, swept clean and emptied of Byzantine troops. Therefore, they were not content merely to preserve their own possessions and to assume control over Maesia, a name for that area, but were compelled to wreak havoc against Byzantine lands and unite the political power of the Maesians and the Bulgarians into one polity as of old. So again, Maesians is kind of uh, referring to the Vlachs. It's another Byzantine name for them. So, uh, so, what happens here, right? So these these guys come back south of the Danube and they find that the Byzantine army is gone and that there, there's no one to, to oppose them in, this, in these lands. And so they just go right back to uniting this area without anyone there to, to kind of prevent them from doing anything. And so th- this also encourages them not just to begin kind of uniting this area as a political unit once again, you know, recreating the old Bulgarian state, but launching attacks into uh, other Byzantine territories like Thrace. So the fact that Isaac didn't finish the job and just kind of left and allowed the, the rebel forces to regroup north of the Danube was clearly a huge mistake. So Bulgarian forces, they move quickly through the territories of the first Bulgarian Empire. You can find a map of that, all the places they went on the website. But pretty quickly, all this area gets reunified. <clears throat> so Isaac 
he needs to do something. So he sends his uncle, the head of yet another army, to stop them. But in spite of a few early victories, that uncle also rebels against Isaac. So then that uncle is replaced. He's defeated. A new commander, who's a bit unfamiliar with the hit-and-run tactics of these Bulgarian rebel forces, gets sent in. He suffers a terrible loss after being ambushed in the mountains. So that's a disaster. Now, a third commander is given an army to go fight them. But this commander also rebels against Isaac in Constantinople, and he's defeated. So by this high time, it's 1187, the rebellion's in its second year, and the momentum is really clearly with the Bulgarians. Because, you know, the so Isaac, you know, he's gotten some victories under his belt against the rebel forces, but nothing that decisive, and he keeps having to deal with his own armies rebelling against him. You know, he hasn't been on the throne that long, his, his reign is not very secure, and so it's a really opportune time for this Bulgarian rebellion, right? They really lucked out that they happened to catch the Bulgarian or the, the Byzantines right at this moment when their leadership is very chaotic. Uh, Isaac doesn't have the full backing of all his soldiers and generals and things. <clears throat> but still, Isaac knows he, he needs to put an end to this rebellion. He can't allow this to, to drag on and to continue to gain momentum. So now he decides to lead an army himself. So this force heads up. It crosses the, the Balkan Mountains up into the, this territory of the new Bulgarian state, and it gets a few minor victories. It does well. But the Bulgarians are still refusing to allow a large pitch battle, which would allow them to be kind of crushed. You know, they're just delaying, delaying, and uh, engaging in small skirmishes. So as usual, even when the Byzantines win, it doesn't mean that much. So what? You won, what did you win? Nothing. Uh, because the Bulgarians can just keep fighting. Isaac then decides to take the fight um, to things that can't vanish in the forest, uh, forests and mountains, right? So if they won't engage him in a major battle, then he's going to lay siege. So he laid siege to the city of Lovech in spring of 1187, but that siege fails after about three months. So not only is this uh, Byzantine army failing to kind of combat a main Bulgarian force, it can't take uh, some of these main Bulgarian uh, fortresses, so they're really just getting nowhere. So it's now pretty clear that there's really very little the Byzantines seem to be able to do to stop this new Bulgarian state. So ultimately, a peace treaty is signed in 1188. Now at this moment, I want to echo what John Fine wrote about this uprising. Uh, I've referenced this before, but in, in essence, you know, at this moment, now the, the Second Bulgarian Empire is officially founded. What was its nature? And I want to argue that it wasn't truly national in character, and it also wasn't inevitable, right? It wasn't inevitable that a new Bulgarian state was going to come about. In fact, it's entirely possible that, you know, the first Bulgarian empire fades into the ash heap of history and there's no modern Bulgarian state at all, right? That the the, the country I'm sitting in now never really exists. In this case, it, it's a bit, it's a confluence of events, right? Uh, the Komnenian restoration ends, the Byzantines suddenly get quite weak, uh, there's a these bad tax policies, there's a bad emperor trying to enforce them. A lot of things come together in just the right way to make this possible. Also, you know, this rising was carried out not just by Bulgarians, but by Vlachs and Cumans, who were all working together. Um, and so the ultimate Bulgarian nature of the establishment of this state, it seems like it was more of an afterthought. You know, once it became clear to Theodore and Asen, who I'll mention acted as kind of co-rulers in these early days, more on that later, once it became clear to them that they could actually win this, that they could actually establish an independent state, it seemed that making that state a reborn Bulgarian state made sense. 
because it allowed them to become instantly recognizable on the Bulgarian stage. Uh, right? Like, if you're gonna, as I mentioned, create like a Turnovo Empire, no one's heard of the Turnovo Empire. The Turnovo Empire wouldn't have any imperial titles or, or imperial history you could draw upon. Uh, it wouldn't mean very much to people. But building this new state on the history and the culture of that previously powerful Bulgarian state uh, was kind of a shortcut to creating a powerful new state. Right? It's just not as easy building an empire from scratch. And so it's a, it's a time saver. So anyways, this new state... Again, what was it like? Well, it controlled the territory roughly between the Balkan Mountains and the Danube. It did not control those old Macedonian territories of the late period of the First Bulgarian Empire, right? So down the, the modern uh, country of Macedonia, that territory is not really part of the state. It's mostly the, the yeah, the, the kind of in-between areas between the mountains and the Danube. Now, at the moment it's created... Isaac, I'll also mention, had Asen's wife and the younger brother, Theodor and Asen, Kaoyan, as prisoners. So they signed this peace treaty, the new states created, but the Byzantines still hold these vital prisoners. So in 1189, there are some bigger events sweeping into this new state and, and changing the political situation. During the past few years, as the Byzantines have been embroiled in chaos and internal divisions, Events in the Holy Land had also been changing fast. A new dynasty had risen up in Egypt and Syria, the Ayyubid dynasty, under a man named Saladin. Now at the same time, the kingdom of Jerusalem was under the rule of a young man named Baldwin, who suffered from leprosy, but was nonetheless a pretty powerful leader. It's not exactly a great film, but if you want to learn a bit more about this period, you can watch Kingdom of Heaven. So ultimately, within a few years, Baldwin dies, and his young son, a man named Guy, takes the throne. <clears throat> but Guy sparks a conflict with Saladin, recklessly attacks the powerful ruler, and gets his army destroyed in the process. The kingdom of Jerusalem, in a short time, is captured. Uh, Saladin takes Acre and Jerusalem in 1187, effectively destroying the Crusader states. Upon hearing the news, Pope Urban III is said to have dropped dead in horror. So... After all this work, the two crusades, all the all the intrigues and everything of the crusader states, we get this uh, young king of Jerusalem, Guy, who foolishly like rushes out to attack Saladin, gets his army destroyed, and, and that's really the end of the crusader states. They're, they're completely taken over by this new dynasty. So in response to this, the new pope quickly calls for a grand third crusade to get in there and retake the Holy Land, avenge the loss of Jerusalem, and the now infamous Saladin. The first to take up the banner was the now very elderly Frederick Barbarossa. He's about 70 at this time. Now, you'll remember this is the same Barbarossa who had refused an alliance with Manuel at the death of Conrad, so he had no interest in a Byzantine alliance. Uh, in 1189, his massive army of 80,000 soldiers and 20,000 knights sets off for the Holy Land. Now, they pass through Hungary, they pick up some more soldiers there, and then they cross the Danube into Byzantine territory. Now, the new Bulgarian state wanted to find a way to take advantage of this new crusade in one way or another. Initially, Tsar Peter IV, as Theodore was now known, simply offered, quote, due respect and a promise of faithful assistance against his enemies, end quote. But for the moment the crusader army entered Byzantine territory, they really found themselves in hostile lands. So the new Bulgarian state was totally willing to work with the crusaders, but the Byzantines were very unfriendly. In fact, Isaac had actually, at this point, made an alliance with Saladin and agreed to kind of impede the Crusaders' progress 
in exchange for Saladin respecting uh, Byzantine territory. Evidently, the prospect of a reborn set of Latin crusader states was bad enough that Isaac was actually willing to work with the Muslims to prevent it. So, you know, once again, the, the, the kind of Christian forces are all fighting against each other. But, uh, you know, again, the, with the, the massacre of the Latins having happened pretty recently, the, the Byzantines are not looking for any opportunity to see some uh, huge Latin armies get close to them because uh, who, who knows what they might do. You know, there's always a Byzantine fear that one of these Latin armies is going to take Constantinople. <clears throat> so by the time the Crusader army reach, reaches Adrianople, Tsar Peter was actually now offering 40,000 soldiers to Frederick and offering that they could work together to actually take Constantinople and install Tsar Peter as emperor of the Byzantines as well as the Bulgarians. So this new Bulgarian state's uh, thinking, okay, maybe we can take advantage of the crusade. We can kind of piggyback on it and use it to fulfill the greatest fears of the Byzantine emperors and properly destroy the Byzantine Empire. Now, it was tempting, but ultimately Frederick Barbarossa decided to stick to his goal, that he was going to just ignore this Bulgarian request, uh, pass through Byzantine lands, and get onto the Holy Land to, to do what he set out to do. So in 1190, he actually kind of reconciles with Isaac and passes through Byzantine territory. Once Frederick left Thrace and moved into Anatolia, Isaac now used the distraction of the Crusades uh, as an excuse to attack Bulgaria again. So he moves his army north, while his navy blockades the Danube to prevent any Cumans from reinforcing. Isaac lays siege to the new Bulgarian capital of Turnoval, but the siege is unsuccessful. And in spite of the Byzantine navy's best efforts, Cumans cross the lower Danube and kind of come in to reinforce the new Bulgarian state. And this leads Isaac to retreat. Like, you know, he, he thought he had a chance here, but his strategy pretty quickly falls apart. Now, the Bulgarians knew that the Byzantines would travel through the Triavna Pass on their way back to Thrace, a pass through the Balkan Mountains. Now, the Bulgarians were able to get there very quickly and lay a trap for the Byzantine army. So as the Byzantine pass, Byzantines pass through, Bulgarians attack and shower the Byzantines with rocks and arrows from the high ground. The Byzantines quickly kind of fall into disarray and get just slaughtered. And Isaac himself barely escapes with his life. His uh, personal bodyguard has to hack through his own soldiers to get him out of there. The Bulgarians almost take another emperor in the passes of the Balkans, but not quite. But importantly, during the battle, many relics and Byzantine regalia were also captured and taken to Tornovo to serve as important symbols of power of the new state. So we're talking... You know, some of the gold and jewels and crowns and things of the emperor himself. So now this is giving like even more kind of a, an, an august um, sort of aura over the new uh, Bulgarian state. Um, so the battle had been led by Asen and was super successful there, not by Tsar Peter. And so it was decided to proclaim Asen Tsar that year as well. So now we have Peter and Asen. They're both Tsars. But uh, while Peter is in uh, the old capital Preslav, Asen, now called Ivanasen, is uh, in control of the new state, mostly in rules from Tornovol. So I think in the early days, Peter, he really takes the, the reins. He's mostly running things. Now that responsibility shifts to Ivanasen. Okay, now I'm going to end the episode here. Just as this newly established Second Bulgarian Empire has found its champion in Ivanasen and has soundly defeated the Byzantines. Frederick Barbarossa and his Crusader army are now in Anatolia, 
And whether that force will succeed in defeating Saladin and retaking Jerusalem remains to be seen. Also, we have to see whether or not the chaotic Balkans are going to allow this new Bulgarian state to survive. I mean, we still got the Serbs and the Hungarians always being menacing. So tune in next time to see where things go next. This episode is written by me, Eric Halsey, produced by Lance Nelson, and with some research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music is written and performed by Teddy Raven. Like us on Facebook, review us, all that good stuff. Check us out on SoundCloud. Check out the Bulgaria Now podcast. And yeah, just uh, get in touch. As always, if you have any questions or something, just uh, send me a message. So everyone, enjoy your winter. And uh, in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck.